Well, good evening, everyone, and again, a special welcome to our friend from Northern California visiting, and glad to have you guys. So, we're a, a church made up of Californians, unfortunately. Uh, I don't know, unfortunately or fortunately, but not, not Richard's, right? Uh, <laughs> anyway, if you have your Bibles, we are starting the book of Lamentations tonight. If you need a Bible, Richard has a bunch in his hand. He'll bring one to your seats. You can follow along with us. As I've shared with you guys uh, many times before, as we make our way through the whole Bible, I have now Lamentations and the Song of Solomon to finish, and then we would have taught through the whole Bible since it's been only been taken 20 years, but it's awesome to yeah, praise the Lord for that. You betcha. And so uh, I thought, man, it's, it's perfect just to go right through from Jeremiah right to Lamentations, and, and uh, um, that's what we're going to do. We're going to look at Lamentations. Uh, chapter 1, all the way to chapter 3, verse 21. So we're going to get halfway through a chapter. That's the goal tonight. And and uh, I didn't want to get too far past that. We're going to maybe sit, you know, cover it all in two settings. But uh, Lamentations chapter 1. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this opportunity that you've given to us to gather together as your church. Lord, that we might study your word together. What a blessing it is to have this place that you provided for us to have your word on our laps, that, Lord, to know that it's your desire to speak to our hearts, to give us not only information but application in our lives, that we might serve you better, uh, love you more, and honor you with our lives. Bless our time together, we pray. We ask your blessing upon the children downstairs as they're being ministered to as well. And just thank you for this time. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, you know, today there's there's fast food, you know, drive-through windows every place. You know, the drive-through for you know for this and for that. You have drive-through windows at pharmacies. I've heard they have drive-through uh, laundromats, you know. But but now there's a uh, maybe you haven't heard of this. There's a drive-through window at a funeral home. Owner and funeral director Ryan Bernard of Bernard Funeral Services in Memphis, Tennessee, offers a unique drive-through memorial service that allows their lo- to visit your loved ones to see you just. Drive through, and, and I saw a YouTube video of it. And there's this, this window, and you pull up, and you look in, and, and you know, and you just drive on your way, and, and uh, without ever leaving your car. I've heard these drive-through windows at mortuaries have become so popular, people are just dying to get in there. You know, I've... well, in a sense, this is what we're looking at in the Book of Lamentations. The nation Judah is in a casket, so to speak. Jeremiah is the funeral director. And we're driving by, all the while watching Judah lie in state and listening to this mournful dirge, Jeremiah's lament. Below the hill, now known as Golgotha and Calvary, just outside of Jerusalem, there's a dark incline known as Jeremiah's Grotto. This is suggested uh, as a location where the, the prophet sat down and observed the ruins of the city while writing Lamentations. If this is true, then it's appropriate that Jeremiah's grotto is located so closely to the spot where our Savior, Jesus Christ, died on the cross some 600 years later. Jesus, too, he wept over Jerusalem's destruction, knowing what would come to the Jews for having rejected God's offer for the kingdom and and despising their one true king. While having warned Judah for four decades of the destruction of Jerusalem and its temple, Jeremiah puts his tears into words once more in a series of, of laments. The Hebrew title of the book comes from the first words of chapter 1, 2, and 4, ikah, meaning ah, how. Another Hebrew word, ganath, has been used, meaning uh, elegies or lamentations. The Greek title is 
thronoi, which means dirges or laments. The Latin is uh, threni, which is tears or lamentations. I think you get the idea that this is going to be sad. Now, there's five chapters in the book of Lamentations, and, and there are five poems. Four of the five chapters, one through four, are acrostic in format. Uh, that is, there are 22 letters in the Hebrew alph- alphabet, and in the chapters 1, 2, and 4, there are 22 verses in each chapter. And each verse begins with the succeeding letter of the alphabet. Chapter 3 is the uh, fullest confession. It contains 66 verses. It also is an acrostic. Every three verses begins with a succeeding letter in the Hebrew alphabet. Chapter 5 also has 22 verses, but it's not written in the acrostic format and we don't know why. Perhaps Jeremiah said, you know, this is way too difficult for me for this acrostic thing. I'm not going to do this for chapter 5. But it's interesting that Psalm 119 is also written in acrostic fashion or format. And Psalm 119 is a psalm of blessing. Whereas Jeremiah's lament describes the destruction caused by disobedience. Three themes run through uh, Jeremiah's five laments. There's the mourning over Jerusalem's destruction and desolation. There's the confession of sin and the acknowledgement of God's judgment, how it was righteous and deserved. And number three, we see the wealth of God's mercy and, and the certain hope of Israel's restoration. The, king ver- the key verses that most people know when, when you say, oh, there's a verse of Lamentations that I like, that they'll, they'll quote Lamentations 3, 23, 22 and 23. Through the Lord's mercies we are not consumed because of the compassion shall not. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Great verse. Great verse to memorize, to underline, and, and, uh, uh, and we'll probably end with it and, and pick it up with it next time together. But as we come to the chapter, chapter 1 breaks really into two movements. In the first uh, 11 verses is a lamentation by Jeremiah. Then in verses 12 to 22, uh, Jerusalem is personified, personified rather, as, as lamenting. And so, here Jeremiah is sitting there on the hill, and he begins this lament. Look at uh, verses uh, 1 through 7. How lonely sits the city that was full of people. How like a widow is she who is great among the nations. The princess, the princess among the provinces has become a slave. She weeps bitterly in the night. Her tears are on her cheeks. Among all her lovers, she has none to comfort her. All their friends have dealt treacherously with her. They have become her enemies. Judah has gone into captivity under affliction and hard servitude. She dwells among the nations. She finds no rest. All her persecutors overtake her in dire straits. The roads to Zion mourn because no one comes to set to the set feasts. All her gates are desolate. Her priests sigh. Her virgins are afflicted and she is in bitterness. Her adversaries have become the master. Her enemies prosper for the Lord has afflicted her because of the multitude of her transgressions. Her children have gone into captivity before the enemy. And from the daughter of Zion, all her splendor has departed. Her princes have become like deer that find no pasture, that flee without strength before the pursuer. In the days of her affliction and roaming Jerusalem, remember, in the days of her affliction and roaming, Jerusalem remembers all of her pleasant things that she had in the days of old, when her people fell into the hand of the enemy with no one to help her. The adversary saw her and mocked at her downfall. I mean, Jeremiah's mind and, and, and thoughts and, and heart are just flooded with images of it, uh, that inspire sorrow. He compared Jerusalem now to, to a widow and, and then to a slave and to an abandoned lover and, and to a betrayed friend. The priests that were so active or, you know, or no, so important in bridging the gap between God and man no longer have a place. They're no longer working. 
innocent young virgins and all the innocent children suffer for the sins of the parents and the leaders. Now the destruction has come, the the people, uh, they're looking upon what they've lost and the cause was given in verse 5, it says, for the multitude of her transgressions. Jeremiah then explains, beginning in verse 8, why all this has happened. Look at verse 8. Jerusalem has sinned gravely, therefore she has become vile. All who honored her despised her because they have seen her nakedness. Yes, she sighs and turns away. Her uncleanness is in her skirt. She did not consider her destiny. Therefore her collapse was awesome. She had no comforter. O Lord, behold my affliction, for the enemy is exalted. The adversary has spread his hand over all her pleasant things. For she has seen the nations and enter her sanctuary, those whom you commanded not to enter your assembly. All her people sigh, they seek bread, they have given their valuables for food to restore life. See, O Lord, and consider, for I am scorned. Jeremiah writes in verse 8, they had sinned gravely. We've seen in our studies in Jeremiah how they constructed idols in the temple, how they, they worshipped the foreign gods by participating, participating in the most uh, you know, immoral, sexual rituals, even sacrificing their own children, putting them, them to death. Thus the reason the place that they were in because of, of sin. Sin always leads to captivity. That's why the Lord calls us to living lives of holiness. Holiness means that we're not enslaved to, to anything. Holiness is the highest form of liberty. Notice verse 9, uh, uh, he says, that She did not consider her destiny, therefore her collapse was awesome. There's a couple ways to look at this word destiny here. One way is that the people did not think ahead to see the consequences of their sinful behavior. Even in light of God's warning over and over and over again, in light of God's written word and throughout God's spoken words, throughout the prophets, the people did not think of the consequences of their sin. Now why did they ignore the consequences? Well, something Jeremiah said in in Jeremiah chapter 7 verse 4, he tells the people there, do not trust in these lying words saying, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord are these. In other words, they looked at the temple as their good luck charm. That nothing can come bad to us because hey, we've got the temple of the Lord here, you know. Nothing can happen bad to us. And so they could push the limits. They could go beyond God's boundaries because they thought, hey, we can have the temple. Now they had watched God you know, allow the northern kingdom of Israel to be overrun and destroyed by the Assyrians. But, oh, that's a northern kingdom. Northern kingdom, they didn't have the temple. Bad for them. The Jews in Judah thought nothing like that can happen here. So they didn't think of their destiny. And number two, destiny can also refer to their ultimate purpose as a nation. Uh, their ultimate purpose as a nation was to bring the knowledge of God to the world. Now, instead of considering that awesome mission, they allowed the world to uh, influence them. It says their collapse was awesome in verse 9 because they, they never thought it would come to this. They never thought that they'd have to pay the penalty for their sins. However, God wasn't messing around. Now, Psalm 145 verse 8 tells us that the Lord is gracious and full of compassion, slow to anger and great in mercy. And even though God was slow to bring about Jerusalem's destruction, it still came as warned. See, that's one of the problems or one of the effects of sin is that there's this short-sightedness. And you don't see the consequences of it as, as you enter into it. All I can see is what's immediately out in front of me. I lose my long-term outlook. You know, life today, it's all about instant gratification. Little, there's little concern for the long-term consequences of my action. 
It's like the guy who was in so in love with the thrill of skydiving, the rush of the free fall, that he jumped out of the airplane without checking to make sure that his chute was, was packed properly. Reminds me of, a, of an ad in a paper that read, For sale, parachute, once used, never opened. <laughs> kind of scary. Satan wants us to live for today. And don't think about the future. I mean, we're sent the message all the time. Man, go for it. Go for all the gusto you can. And man, you only go around once in life. And man, you, you have the right to be happy, you know. I think we're called the impulse society. But the Lord would say to us, consider the consequences of our actions. That's what Judah failed to do. She did not consider her destiny. And we need to think ourselves of our, of our own destiny. We've been called by God to share the love of Jesus with the dying world around us. People are perishing. And if they're not perishing, they certainly are suffering. And we have the words of eternal life. We have the keys to unlock the kingdom to the people around us. The, the gospel, the good news. And we can offer God's forgiveness of sins and promise that old things will pass away. All things can become new. Uh, you know, but, but the problem is, uh, we, are we getting so attached to this world that we never give the loss of second thought? Listen, we shouldn't be allowing the world to change us or to be so caught up in this world that we become useless. That, you know, we need to be changing the world. We need to be, need to be those living holy lives, staying far away from sin and seriously and consistently be those reaching out to those in need. Here's my point, and here's what we've seen throughout our study in the book of Jeremiah, and that is sin always has consequences. It may offer excitement and pleasure for a season, but it always always leaves you, as, as we've read, a widow or a slave or an abandoned lover or a betrayed friend. Harms around those around you who are innocent, your children if you have them. You know, here's the bottom line. If, if you have time to sin, then you don't understand the times in which you're living in. We, we don't have much time left. The Lord's coming back. So, in verses 1 through 11 is a lamentation by Jeremiah. Now, verses 12 to 22, Jerusalem is, is personified as lamenting. Look at verse 12. Is it nothing to you all who pass by? Behold and see if there is any sorrow like my sorrow which has been brought on me, which the Lord has inflicted in the days of his fierce anger. From above he has sent fire into my bones and it overpowered them. He has spread a net for my feet and turned me back. He has made me desolate and faint all the day. The yoke of my transgressions was bound. They were woven together by his hands and thrust upon my neck. He made my strength fail. The Lord delivered me into the hands of those whom I am not able to withstand. The Lord has trampled underfoot all my mighty men in my midst. He has called an assembly against me to crush my young men. The Lord trampled as in a winepress the virgin daughter of Judah. For these things I weep. My eye, my eye overflows with water because the comforter who should restore my life is far from me. My children are desolate because the enemy prevailed. Zion spreads out her hands, but no one comforts her. The Lord has commanded concerning Jacob that those around and become his adversaries. Jerusalem has become an unclean thing among them. You read this and you can hear the repetition of the Lord, the Lord, the Lord. One thing is certain, God now had their full attention. I mean, did he really have to go that far to get their full attention? Yes, that far, but no further. See, from our perspective, it can seem God allows things that that are extreme. Oh, God, uh, how long is this going to last? And this just seems so extreme. But, 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 you know, it's not like that. God is not like the person who finally loses his temper and then lashes out. Oh, you know. His punishments are all measured out and they're perfect. 
Judah was overrun, Jerusalem destroyed, the temple burned, the people taken captive, because nothing short of that would return them to their spiritual center, would return them to where they needed to be. Verse 18. The Lord is righteous, for I rebelled against His commandment. Hear now, all peoples, and behold my sorrow. My virgins and my young men have gone into captivity. I called for my lovers, but they deceived me. My priests and my elders breathed their last in the city while they sought food to restore their life. See, O Lord, that I am in distress. My soul is troubled. My heart is overturned within me. For I have been very rebellious. Outside the sword bereaves. At home it's like death. They have heard that I sigh, but no one comforts me. All my enemies have heard of my trouble. They are glad that you have done it. Bring on the day you have announced they, that they may become like me. Let all their wickedness come before you and do to them as you have done to me for all my transgressions. For my sighs are many and my heart is faint. Jeremiah is asking God to judge his enemies with the same measure by which he has judged them. Now we know from finishing up the book of Jeremiah that God did exactly that as we read, you know, that God judged the nations around them for their own wickedness. We looked at how Paul said in Acts chapter 17, 26, and he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwelling. So after God allowed Babylon to come in and, and judge Judah and Jerusalem, then these other nations, God said, okay, now it's time for you to be a judge. And these other nations, their time was up. Why? Well, because of their sin. We've looked at this before. Proverbs 14.34 tells us, Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. I mean, the seriousness of practicing righteousness is understood when you read Psalm 9, verse 17, where it says, The wicked shall be turned into hell, and all the nations that forget God. See, here God has sent famines and droughts and, and droughts and, and pestilence. He had sent His prophets to make clear what was happening and why. Yet the Jews had just hardened their hearts over and over again and just got more and more involved in this gross idolatry, which again you know, included the sacrifice of children. And so, as we begin chapter 2, we understand why God's judgment finally has come. Look now at chapter 2, verse 1. We look now, we understand how the Lord has covered the, the daughter of Zion with a cloud in his anger. He cast out from heaven to the earth the beauty of Israel and did not remember his footstool in the day of his anger. Now again, verse 1 begins with that word, how. It's the same word that began chapter 1. It's the title of the book. It's a sigh. It's, you know, it's a lament. Now we know that in the Old Testament, God referred to Israel as his footstool. I mean, God is you know, bigger than the heavens, you know, bigger than the universe. The universe can't contain him. Yet he rests his feet on Israel. Kicks off his shoes and calls Jerusalem home. It's his foot, footstool. Verse 2. The Lord has swallowed up and has not pitied all the dwelling places of Jacob. He has thrown down in his wrath the strongholds of the daughter of Judah. He has brought them down to the ground. He has profaned the kingdoms and its princes. He has cut off in fierce anger every horn of Israel. He has drawn back his right hand from before the enemy. He has blazed against Jacob like a flaming fire, devouring all around. Standing like an enemy, he has bent his bow with his right hand like an adversary. He has slain all who were pleasing to his eye. On the tent of the daughter of Zion, he has poured out his fury like fire. The Lord was like an enemy. He has swallowed up Israel. He has swallowed up all her palaces. He has destroyed her strongholds and has increased mourning and lamentation in the daughter of Judah. So, listen, God wasn't Israel's enemy. He was their father. 
But for a time, they felt as if God was their enemy. He was, he was, you know, they thought he was acting like one. The Lord was like an enemy we just read. Now, if you're a dad, you know how that works. You know, dad loves their kids. He wants what's, what's best for them. But when he doesn't give in to their demand, doesn't give in to their wants, you know, when he refuses to be manipulated, you know, or intimidated by them, and when dad puts his foot down, what happens? Sometimes the kids say, well, you're the meanest man in the whole wide world. <laughs> well, I may be, but I'm still your dad and I still say no. One author describes the dad as a provider of all and the, and the enemy of all. Why? Because see, the dad's job is, is to give the children what they need, not what they want. And that's God's attitude towards us. That's why at times he needs to bring some discipline in our lives. We know Hebrews 12 says, whom the Lord loves, he chastens, he, he disciplines. We should be glad when, when God brings that discipline in our lives. When God spanks us, it's an indication that he loves you and you're truly his child. Hebrews 12, 11 adds, no chastening seems to be joyful for the present. It's no fun to get spanked, but, but it's a necessary correction. See, a, a big key to a happy life is learning to recognize who your true friends are. There may be times when God seems to be your enemy, but in reality, He's your best friend, and He wants what's absolutely best for your life. And He knows what is and what isn't best for your life. Okay, verse 6 continues. He has done violence to His tabernacle as if it were a garden. He has destroyed His place of assembly. The Lord has caused the appointed feast and Sabbaths to be forgotten in Zion. In His burning indignation, He has spurned the king and the priest. The Lord has spurned his altar. He's abandoned his sanctuary. He has given up the walls of her palaces into the hand of the enemy. They have made a noise in the house of the Lord as on the day of a set feast. Because they were not worshiping the Lord as they should, they, they were neglecting true worship, God took away all the institutions of their true worship that they were observing because it was, they were just doing it in hypocrisy. They didn't have the altar or the tabernacle. They didn't have the priest. Now, would they still worship him? See, it's a reminder to all of us that the Lord is interested in our worship, not with everything going on around us, but, but our hearts. Our hearts truly in that place of worshiping the Lord. The old saying is still true, the heart of worship is, is worship from the heart. It doesn't do us any good just to go through the outward motions of, if, you know, if our mind is wandering about, well, I need to get that done today. Bless the Lord, oh my soul. And we're, we're talking about thinking about every other thing, but what, what God, you know, showing worth to God and praise to Him. Verse 8, he goes on. The Lord has purposed to destroy the wall of the daughter of Zion. He has stretched out a line. He has not withdrawn his hand from destroying. Therefore, he has caused the rampart and wall to lament. They languish together. Her gates have sunk into the ground. He has destroyed and broken her bars. Her king and her princes are among the nations. The law is no more, and her prophets find no vision from the Lord. Now, often in Scripture, uh, uh, you know, a, a lack of vision is the Lord's judgment. We know that Proverbs twenty nine eighteen says, where there's no vision, the people perish, but he that keepeth the law, happy is he. Here, Jeremiah, he's lamenting all of their losses, the beauties and the blessings and everything that came, you know, uh, of Jerusalem. They're all gone. The blessings of the feast, the blessings of the, of the temple, the altar, the walls, the gates, even the king and the leaders, and finally the law and the prophets. The one that gave them the visions of the Lord that spoke of, thus saith the Lord, they're all gone. All squandered. Verse 10. 
The elders of the daughter of Zion sit on the ground and keep silence. They throw dust on their heads and gird themselves with sackcloth. The virgins of Jerusalem bow their heads to the ground. My eyes fell with tears. My heart is troubled. My bile is poured on the ground because of the destruction of the daughter of my people, because the children and the infants faint in the streets of the city. I mean, Jeremiah, he loses his lunch. I mean, he's blowing chunks here. I mean, that's what he's saying. I'm dry heaving over the devastation that he saw. Even the children and infants were victims. Verse 12, they, they say to their mothers, where is grain and wine? As they swoon like the wounded in the streets of the city, as their life is poured out in their mother's bosom. How shall I console you? To what shall I liken you, O daughter of Jerusalem? What shall I compare with you that I may comfort you, O virgin daughter of Zion? For your ruin is spread wide as a sea. Who can heal you? You know, in Deuteronomy chapter 28, God promised Israel, you can either have blessings or cursings, depending on what you choose. If, if they obeyed the law, they would be blessed. If they didn't obey the law, they would be cursed. And, and these blessings and cursings were, were incomparable. No nation would be as blessed if they would follow what God says, but no nation would be as cursed. And then both were proof that God was the God of Israel. And so this is, this is extreme. Verse 14. He says, your prophets have seen for you false and deceptive visions. They have not uncovered your iniquity to bring back your captives, but have envisioned for you false prophecies and delusions. We talked about this through our study in the book of Jeremiah. They had the word of God. They had true prophets there, but they, they preferred the lying words of the lying prophets who told them their sin wasn't really sinful. You know, we get that today. There's a lot of false teachers out there. They don't even want to talk about sin. You know, you know, just talk about how good God is. And, oh, let's, let's love, love, love. Okay, what about sin? You know, worst thing that, that mistakes that society can make is to call sin an evil good. Verse 15. All who pass by clap their hands at you. They hiss and shake their heads at the daughter of Jerusalem. Is this the city that is called the perfection of beauty, the joy of the whole earth? So in other words, Judah's enemies were quoting scripture. Quoting Psalm 48. Psalm 48 describes Jerusalem as fair and beautiful and elevation is the joy of all the earth. Mount Zion, the city of David. Here, you know, the, 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 her enemies mocked the city. The city that lived in bliss, you know, is now just a hiss, you know, it says there. But take note. Even God's enemies read the Bible. They knew Psalm 48. Which reminds us that, that just having a Bible... Even reading your Bible is not enough. We need to believe and obey and do what we read. Do what we say. Be, be doers of the word, not just hearers of the word. Verse 16. All your enemies have opened their mouth against you. They hiss and gnash their teeth. They say, we have swallowed her up. Surely this is the day we have waited for. We have found it. We have seen it. The Lord has done what he purposed. He has fulfilled his word, which he commanded in days of old. He has thrown down and is not pitied. And he has caused an enemy to rejoice over you. He has exalted the horn of your adversaries. Again, the Jews were supposed to be revealing the glory of God to other nations. They were God's plan of evangelism. If they wouldn't do it from a position of obedience, then God was going to use them uh, through discipline. Verse 18 says, Their heart cried out to the Lord, O wall of the daughter of Zion, let tears run down like a river at night. Give yourself no relief. Give your eyes no rest. He's saying all of, all of Jerusalem should have shed tears, not just Jeremiah. Verse 10, Arise, cry out in the night. At the beginning of the watches. Now the watches were divided into three shifts. From 10 to midnight, midnight to 2 and 2 to 6. 
He's saying, cry out from all the watches. He says, cry out in the night at the beginning of the watches. Pour out your heart like water before the face of the Lord. Lift your hands towards Him for the life of your young children who faint from hunger at the head of every street. Verse 20. See, O Lord, and consider, to whom have you done this? Should the woman eat their offspring? The children they have cuddled, should they priest and prophet be slain in the sanctuary of the Lord? I mean, this was horrible. You know, unthinkable, you know, result of this 18-month Babylonian siege against Jerusalem. We talked about that last time. You know, the, the siege, they would surround the city and they would stop any resource, anything, they would stop it from going in or out. Eventually they would starve to death or they would have to come out and fight. And food had become so scarce in the city that uh, the women resorted to cannibalism. They ate their own babies just to survive. I mean, just, just you cringe at reading this. Verse 21. Young and old lie on the ground in the streets. My virgins and my young men have fallen by the sword. You have slain them in the day of your anger. You have slaughtered and not pitied. You have invited us to a feast day the terrors that surround me. In the day of the Lord's anger, there is no refugee or survivor. Those whom I have borne and brought up by my enemies, my enemies have destroyed. You know, the Babylonians, they, they, you know, they, they, were, they, were, they were cruel. Absolutely cruel. They take no prisoners, left no survivors. Sadly, even some of Jeremiah's own family and friends, those whom I have borne and brought up, had been slaughtered, he says there. And he just hear his heart. He, he loved people. He cared about the lives of others and the tears that stained his cheeks were proof that the, the, the lives were destroyed and, and he's just lamenting. He's just pouring out his tears here. Why? Because he knew their destination. He knew what was happening to those that he loved. Reminds me of two men who were discussing their respective churches. The first man said, well, we just fired our pastor and hired a new one. The other, the other fellow responded, well, why did you fire him? The first man answered, well, because he spoke too much about hell. His buddy asked him, well, what, what does the new pastor speak on? Does he speak on hell? The man replied, yes, all the time. Well, the man was confused. Well, what's the difference? The first man answered, well, when the new pastor speaks about hell, you get the impression he doesn't want you to go there. That's a big deal, you know. <laughs> I, guess the, I guess the first guy, I mean, he didn't care. But It was the great evangelist D.L. Moody who said this, only Mr. Moody... Uh, 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 has a right to preach on hell for when he does, he, or it's said about him rather, only Mr. Moody has a right to preach on hell for when he does, he preaches it with tears in his voice. I mean, just to think about that and think about the destination of those we love. Maybe the reason folks aren't listening to us nowadays is because they don't think we really believe what we preach. Jeremiah did and now he sees the result of them not listening right before their eyes. And, and that is one reason I'm thankful that when the Bible teaches that the, the great tribulation is going to happen upon this earth, God's pouring out His wrath upon the, the sinful earth, that we are raptured out of here. And we're with the Lord, and we're there at the supper, the marriage supper of the land, and we're hanging out. We're, we're not looking at what's going on down here on the earth. It would break our hearts. Just to be with the Lord, and, and, and the, the former things just all pass away. Okay, let's start chapter 3. 66 verses in this chapter, but we're just going to cover a few. Remember, chapter 3 is also an acrostic, but a triple acrostic. Every three verses begins with a a succeeding letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Okay, verse 1. I am the man who has seen affliction by the rod of his wrath. I think chapter 3 is one of the most intimate uh, of Jeremiah's 
uh, writings here. In fact, at, at times it's hard to tell if he's speaking personally or on behalf of the, the suffering people. See, he's not some hard, you know, moralist, quick to cast judgment. He's not some critic detached from, from those that he criticized. Jeremiah, he understood the plight of his people. He had known for many, many years that the nation's judgment was were written in stone. It was coming. The Jews were heading towards this inevitable destruction. And he had encouraged them to surrender, to surrender. To, to resist the Babylonians was to fight against the hand of Almighty God as we looked at. Yet Jeremiah didn't thunder these warnings in a, in a condescending way. He, you know, he said, well, I told you so. You, know, you better, you know, he, doesn't, he was one of the people. He was one of them. And he was with them until the bitter end. He's the captain willing to go down with the ship. And the tears are rolling down his cheek. They weren't fake tears. They came from his heart. The nation was suffering. He was suffering. He writes in verse 2 that, that he, that is God, has led me and made me walk in darkness and not in light. Surely he has turned his hand against me time and time again throughout the day. So Jeremiah, he's saying, kind of felt like that, like, you know, God picked a team and refused to choose Jeremiah on his team. You're like, I'll take you, 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 but, but not you. That's how Jeremiah felt. It was as, as if God had led him down a dark alley that then just left him there hanging, abandoned and rejected. Of course, how we feel isn't always how we are, how things are, rather. You know, our feelings can lie to us all the time. God had not forsaken Jeremiah. Remember in Jeremiah chapter 1, we're told that God chose Jeremiah before he was born. And, and, and he had remained faithful to him for all of his life. But here in, in Jeremiah's heart, it, 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 it's not God speaking. It, it, it's not even the prophet speaking. It's his pain that is speaking. The pain that he's going through and what he's seeing and what he's realizing. And man, when you're in pain, you know, you can speak some crazy things. But pain and suffering, when we go through, it also accomplishes great things. It was A.W. Tozer who said that it's doubtful whether God can bless a man greatly until he has hurt him deeply. Reminds me of a little country church where the members gathered that was uh, for what was called a testimony night, a testimony meeting. It was time for everyone to share what, what blessings God is doing in their lives. And one of the church members uh, that night was, was Uncle Ephraim, and his body had been bent and crippled with arthritis. The old boy could barely move. He was the only person not to share a testimony. So the pastor decided to call on him. Brother Ephraim, suppose you tell us what the Lord has done for you. Well, the old guy stood up on his wobbly knees and says, Pastor, he might near ruin me. Yeah, and that's a problem with pain. Rather than realize that this sinful fallen world is man's fault, pain causes us to blame our, blame our, our troubles on God, which only exasperates the problem. Judah's suffering was a result of their own sin. Yet Jeremiah's pain continues to speak in verse 4. We read, He has aged my flesh and my skin and broken my bones. I mean, his, Jeremiah's ministry was difficult. Forty years he's tried to, to shepherd a rebellious people. His life had been filled with conflict and combat and jail time and dungeons and beatings and, and tortures in and, and, and the stocks. And, and he, he, all he endured just kind of worn him down. You know, we read it, you know, his skin is weathered, is scarred, his bones have been broken, never really been set right, which caused him to heal crookedly. His body's all disjointed, and he's probably, you know, had back problems with all of this, probably walked with a limp. I bet he looked at least 20 older, years older than his actual age. It's been tough. Verse 5, he goes on. He has besieged me and surrounded me with bitterness and woe. He has set me in dark places like the dead of long ago. 
has hedged me and so that I cannot get out. He has made my chain heavy. Again, the pain is speaking in Jeremiah. He's saying that he felt as if God trapped him. Do you remember when Jeremiah felt trapped earlier? Felt trapped earlier in Jeremiah chapter 20, verse 9 of Jeremiah. Jeremiah tried to resign. I'm not going to do this anymore. I'm out of here. And he said to the Lord there, he says, I will not make mention of him nor speak anymore in his name. But he goes on. But his word was in my heart like a burning fire shut up in my bones. I was weary of holding it back and I could not. I couldn't keep God's word out from sharing. I just had to. No matter what the difficulties were that he was facing, he had to get the word out. Yeah, God did hedge Jeremiah in. But Jeremiah also had a passion for God's word and for God's people that he could never shake. But now he's feeling hedged in all over again and his pain continues to speak out. Verse 8. When he says, even when I cry and shout, he shuts out my prayer. What a very human verse, you know. Have you ever felt that way? Oh God, I'm praying, but you're not listening. It's not that God isn't listening. God is there. You wonder there, but God is there. Verse 9, he goes on. He has blocked my ways with hewn stone. He has made my paths crooked. He has been to me a bear lying in wait, like a lion in ambush. He has uh, turned aside my ways and torn me in pieces. He has made me desolate. He has bent his bow and set me up as a target for the arrow. Have you ever felt like a target? Walking around with a, a target on your back, you know, target practice? Jeremiah did. I was just waiting for the next arrow to hit him. Verse 13, He has caused the arrows of his quiver to pierce my loins. I become the ridicule of all my people. Their taunting song all the day. He has filled me with bitterness. He has made me drink wormwood. You know, if you ever think about getting full-time, getting into full-time Christian ministry uh, as a re- rewarding career, uh, I, you know, I don't. Maybe you should take a look at Jeremiah here. It wasn't very affirming for him. I mean, ministry for him was was a was a bitter experience. He became really the whipping boy for all those who turned against God. Forty years, Jews again had demonstrated their rebellion against God by turning on this on this prophet Jeremiah. And just the, the price that, 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 that servant of God sometimes has to pay. So, I mean, don't be surprised when it happens to you. You know, the Jesus said, or Paul said rather, in 2 Timothy 3.12, Yes, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. We will be persecuted. People will come against us. Verse 16, He also broken my teeth with gravel and covered me with ashes. You have moved my soul far from peace. I have forgotten prosperity. He's been in pain for so long, he doesn't recall what prosperity is like. Verse 18. And I said, my strength and my hope have perished from the Lord. Remember my affliction and roaming, the wormwood and the gall. My soul still remembers and sinks within me. Even though God had not forsaken Jeremiah, it's clear that the prophet felt as if he had. I mean, just, just you can hear the depression in his voice. And you know, I think we all do experience times of depression. C.H. Spurgeon, known as a prince of pre- preachers, he put it this way. Fits of depression come over most of us, usually cheerful as we may be. We must at intervals be cast down. The strong are not always vigorous. The wise not always ready. The brave not always courageous. And the joyous not always happy. There may be here and there men of iron, but surely the rust frets even these. Jeremiah says, says in verse 20, My soul still remembers and sinks within me. All the judgment, all the destruction that Jeremiah had seen had, had been too much for him. Finally, verse 21, This I recall in my mind, therefore I have hope. 
This is great. In the midst of all the Jeremiah's, all of his lamentations, all of his, his, his heartfelt crying out, he has hope. Now I want to end with hope here. I said we'll begin next time with hope because verses 21 through 42 all speak of hope. But I, I, I don't want to end with just a dirge and, and, and a lament. Uh, we don't want to start, you know, end with hope. Why is that? Because we all have hope. We, we all have that choice to make in our lives. You know, sometimes we get to thinking that, that depression is, is something that we have no control over. Almost like we become a helpless victim beat up by some monster that, that's greater than us. And Jeremiah knew he had some choices. He had a choice over what he was going to think about. Was it going to be positive or was it going to be negative? Was it going to be an optimist or was it going to be this pessimist? There's a story about identical twins. One was a hope-filled optimist. Everything coming up roses, he would say. The other twin was sad and hopeless. He was a pessimist. He, he thought that Murphy's Law was, was uh, an optimistic view. Uh, they, the worried the parents of the boys brought them to, to the local psychologist and he suggested to the parents a plan that might balance out the twins' personalities. So on their next birthday, put them in separate rooms to open their gifts, give the pessimist the best toys you can afford, and give the optimist a box of manure. Well, the parents followed these instructions and carefully observed the results. When they peeked in on the pessimist, they heard him audibly complaining, I don't like the color of this computer. I bet this calculator will break. I don't like the game. I know someone who's got a bigger toy than this. Tiptoeing across the hallway, the parents peeked in and saw the little optimist gleefully throwing the manure up in the air. He's giggling and laughing as they heard him saying, You can't fool me. Where there's this much manure, there's got to be a pony. (laughs) We have a choice to make each and every day. Jeremiah suddenly has a change of mind. And he remembers, I have hope. God penetrates his darkness and brings a ray of hope. God has a way of doing that in our lives. When we're down for the count and darkness has all but engulfed us, a light from God can pierce through the darkness. All right, we've got to close with verses 22 and 23. I can't just skip over it. Through the Lord's mercies we are not consumed because His compassion shall not. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. See, it dawns on Jeremiah. Man, it could, get, could be much worse. Yet God would have been justified in wiping the Jews off the face of the earth completely, damning every one of them to the pit of hell. But that's not the faith that God assigned to His people. God had mercy on them. His rebellious people were not consumed. God would see his nation's survival. You know, oftentimes we mourn over the difficulties we face rather than rejoice over the trouble that we've escaped. God, thank you that you protected me from that. And we lick our wounds, but but not think of all that, that God has spared us from. Even though God's judgment is needed at times, it's always tempered with his mercy. Thank Him for His mercy. As Jeremiah says of God's mercy, they are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. We'll begin with those verses next week together. Let's pray.